Each year, Child Protective Services investigates over 1 million families. Every investigation includes a room-by-room search of the family home, as well as the threat of the state's coercive authority to remove children from their families. Today, we discuss how these investigations have evaded traditional Fourth Amendment scrutiny. My name is Georgiana Sue, and you're listening to the California Law Review Podcast. Our goal is to provide an accessible and thought-provoking overview of the scholarship we publish. In today's episode, we will be discussing Family Policing and the Fourth Amendment, a piece by CUNY School of Law Associate Professor Tarek Ismail. This piece will be published in Issue 5 of Volume 111 in October of 2023. Professor Ismail, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today about your article. Thanks for having me and for all the work that you and your colleagues put into this uh, into this article. I really appreciate it. So just to begin with, can you summarize your main arguments in this piece? Sure. So um, the main argument here is quite simple, actually. It is that any time a government agent goes into someone's home, they can only do so based on consent um, or with a warrant substantiated by probable cause that there would be evidence of wrongdoing if they went into that home. Um, that should that should seem maybe obvious <laughs> to listeners here, but the point of this article is to say that the term government agent includes more than just police officers as we would traditionally um, think think of, but would include um, child protective services agents as agents of the government who are doing investigations into allegations um, of particular families. And so that's the argument that I that I make here that if CPS wants to get into a home, a parent has a right, just like any person under um, police investigation to ask for a warrant. If they do, then CPS has to go to court and get a warrant that is substantiated by probable cause. And I'm curious what motivated you to write this piece? Well, you know, I, I come to this piece as um, as a practitioner. Um, for, for some years I represented, before starting my work in the clinic here at CUNY, I represented parents and and other caregivers in neglect and abuse proceedings in Brooklyn um, as a public defender. You know, you would notice that so many of the cases came in where the allegations um, that initially brought the case in had nothing to do with what would eventually come come to court. So many of these cases involved evidence gathering that was happening under the guise of benevolence. So CPS would come in and say, hey, we're here to help. And then they would do all sorts of things that the the person who isn't exposed to this sort of investigation would find really sort of objectionable. And I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about them later in the piece. As I started to look more and more into this, I discovered that, you know, the the cases that made their way to court um, were just the tip of the iceberg. So we're talking about of all the investigations that happen in, in any given year, only about 5% of those end up in court. The, the bulk of them, 95% of the cases, never see a judge. They don't have any court supervision. No one is looking at um, CPS as they're doing their investigations. And, and worse still is that about um, of those 95%, um, about 80% of cases never substantiate the allegations in the first place. So the family has undergone a really invasive experience with a government agent 
Um, and the government agent actually just comes and says, oh, well, I guess we didn't find anything and, and we'll leave you alone. So today, for example, while one in four white American children will go through a CPS investigation before they turn the age of 18, one in two black children will go through a CPS investigation before they turn 18, which means one in two black children in the U.S. has a government agent knocking on their door and searching through their home in the ways that we'll talk about without any oversight by, by a judge. And so that to me was caused to at least make a, a case for the fact that basic Fourth Amendment protections apply here and with the hopes that, you know, practitioners might be able to, to do something with that. And of course, that affected families might be able to do something with that, you know, with, with adequate sort of planning and, and support. So early on in the article, you explain the process that leads up to a typical CPS home search today and the legal and institutional backgrounds that informs the searches themselves. Can you lay out the key features of these searches for listeners, including their similarity to investigations conducted by police? So um, most criminal cases that come into criminal court uh, start with an arrest. It's not like there's a long investigation that leads up to it and then there's an arrest. No, like the thing happens and someone just goes in and gets arrested the vast majority of the time. That's different in, in, in the case of CPS. So every or the vast majority of CPS cases come in through some report into a hotline. Those reports happen either from a reporter who's mandated um, by state and federal law to make those reports and mandated reporters include everything from school teachers to therapists. When they have a concern of maltreatment, um, they are required by law to make a report to this hotline um, on penalty of crime and on penalty of your licensure. Um, and of course, many people call in reports because they don't know what to do and they don't have the resources available to help out a kid. And so the problem goes to CPS um, and CPS goes out to do an investigation once they determine that the allegations called in meet the state's definition of neglect or abuse. Within um, 24 to 48 hours, the local social services agency is dispatched to do an investigation. Most states either require or imply that as part of that investigation, two main things have to happen. The local services, uh, social services agency has to see the child and to do a, home, a search of the home environment. Some states don't explicitly require that, but they sort of imply that that's a requirement and federal guidelines suggest um, doing a search of the home environment. What that means in practice is, to answer uh, the question that you asked, Georgiana, is these agents or caseworkers um, show up at a door and say to a parent, hey, you know, I'm, I'm here from CPS, can I come in? Or I'm here from CPS, I need to come in. And because these investigations happen so often in the same neighborhoods by virtue of the racial disparity in the system, folks know that the CPS agent has the power to take children away. So families um, very often let them in. CPS um, will speak with every member of the family most times who's there. Um, often they will separate a child and speak with the child separately, ask the child really invasive questions, oftentimes that have nothing to do with the allegation. And so regardless of whether the allegation is educational neglect or a spanking, 
CPS comes in and sort of the gear continues to turn, right? And so it asks questions about how would you rate your relationship with mommy or daddy from one to 10? Sometimes they will ask children um, to lift up their shirts or pull down their pants as a part of their regular investigation. Again, regardless of if the allegation is educational neglect or that the kid might have been home alone or that um, you know they didn't have adequate housing. They often sort of go through kitchen cabinets to theoretically to ensure that there's enough food. They will go through medicine cabinets to see what medicine is being prescribed. It's the kind of investigation, the kind of very thorough investigation that a, that a, a police officer would dream of being able to do if not restricted by a warrant, which would otherwise sort of say, okay, you're only allowed to look here for this thing. But CPS thinks about these as home visits, right? They don't often think about them as, as searches. And so um, they don't think about them as similarly restricted. So in essence, almost CPS is able to hide behind the idea that this is a home search. It's nothing crazy. And that gives them grounds to enter as opposed to a police officer with a scary warrant. Yeah, I can give you, I can give you an example. I mean, there's a story from ProPublica that I cite in the piece from just last year that cites a number that's something like 56,000 home searches were done by, by CPS in, I think the year was 2020. Of those 56,000 searches that were done, CPS obtained warrants in 95, right? So 99.75% of the cases, they're not getting warrants. When you ask them if the Fourth Amendment applies here, they'll say something like, yeah, the Fourth Amendment applies, but this isn't a search, this is a home visit, right? And we'll get into the, the legal implications of what they're saying in a second, I'm sure. But what they're implying is that they shouldn't have to do the same exhaustive showing of, um, of proof in order to get a warrant if someone refuses, right? But of course, this is a search. And so that, that language is, uh, is manipulative. So with these details in mind, a core argument of your article covers the jurisprudence of CPS home searches. And specifically, you discuss how this jurisprudence has failed to meaningfully consider the extent to which CPS agents function within the historical scope of the Fourth Amendment's search doctrine. And a key part of that argument is how the family policing system came out of the American welfare state, particularly through the so-called Fleming Rule. So can you briefly summarize this history and its impact on the way we view home searches today? Sure. Um... So in the 1950s um, and, and 60s, as we began to roll out social welfare in this country, the ugliness of racism was sort of written into the law. And so um, at the time, they had sort of what they called suitability uh, rules that each state could use to determine whether or not a family was suitable to receive welfare benefits, right? And so ultimately what that would mean is an, uh, a welfare worker would go in and they weren't theoretically evaluating whether or not the person was parenting adequately. They weren't evaluating maltreatment. They were simply evaluating suitability of, of, the, of the home. And so certain things like whether or not a mother was solo parenting children, who was supporting the kids, all of these questions which were coded, of course, for, for racist presumptions about how families are are meant to be run resulted in findings of 
unsuitability. So in the years leading up to the Fleming rule in the, in the early 1960s, thousands and thousands of black families, um, mostly in the South, were just knocked off of the welfare rolls simply because agents would go and determine that they weren't suitable. And so ultimately, the Fleming rule was sort of the, the birth of this idea that like, no, 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 we can't do that. There's got to be some benevolent way to deal with this problem, right? And so instead of saying, look, just provide the welfare that these families need, Fleming suggests something that, again, is considered to be benevolent, but ends up being a lot more nefarious, right? It asks that welfare worker to wear a second hat. They're no longer just going in to evaluate the suitability of the home. They're also going in um, and saying, you can't just cut someone off because their home isn't suitable. You also have to evaluate, and here I'm summarizing some of the arguments in the piece, but you also have to evaluate whether or not the family needs support and whether or not um, the children are getting adequate support. And this now turns that welfare worker into a police of sorts, right? So we're no longer um, going and doing an up-down check for, is there a parent with a kid in the home? In that case, they would be suitable in an ideal world, right? Instead, now we're doing a, a parental fitness test. The theory behind it is, well, we need to offer parents support or remove the child from that uh, unsuitable situation. But now you are asking the welfare worker to do um, the sort of work that police were previously doing, including referring the case to a court or to the police if they thought that a kid needed to be removed from their parents' care. So all of a sudden you have this role being played, which is now you're evaluating a family for whether or not maltreatment um, is going on. Now you're evaluating for something more than just um, does this family meet the requirements financial or otherwise, right, for, for the sort of support that they might otherwise, that they might otherwise be qualified for. And so after the Fleming rule, you note that the Supreme Court's treatment of the CPS regime has been characterized by slips. And slips, as you explain, are analyses commonly undertaken by the court that overlook CPS's rule. They do this by deciding cases based on other, more familiar government actors that the court can more easily accept, digest, and reckon with. So can you elaborate on these court slips and explain how they've resulted in courts overlooking CPS, even as CPS's influence and reach has grown over time through federal legislation? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I, I think the way I've, I've tended to think about this is I think it's quite difficult for the court to contend with um, police that are enforcing law other than the criminal law, right? And so here we have a new set of officers that crop up with the Child Abuse Prevention um, and Treatment Act, CAPTA, in 1974. So with CAPTA, you are moving away from that dual hat that the welfare worker is, is wearing. And you've now got just an agent who's there to look at whether or not child um, maltreatment is happening, yes or no. And so it's useful to think about, like, how, how, how does this happen? What 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 is what's going on as the court's thinking about this right before capta comes into place you have this this case wyman v james uh, in in the early 70s which is evaluating this very question of whether or not a parent has a fourth amendment right to say no to the welfare worker who we were discussing before who is coming into the home 
to evaluate whether or not the person would get welfare benefits, right? And the court in that case says, look, this worker is coming into your home as a condition of a contract that you made with the government. You made a contract with the government that I'm going to get these welfare benefits, and in exchange, I'm going to let this worker come in and evaluate my home. And the only harm that's done to the person who's living in that home, Miss James in this case, is that she loses out on the contract. Like she, by not letting the person into her home to do the evaluation, she's breaching the contract. And therefore, that's that. Like that's the end of it. In that way of thinking, the court's saying this agent is there to, to protect the government fisc, right? We're trying to make sure that when the government is doling out money, that it's doling it out properly. And if she doesn't want to let them in, then that's her loss. She doesn't get the the financial support that she otherwise might get. Of course, that's retrograde, right? That logic is so backwards. Um, but that's the logic that the government, uh, sorry, that the court relies on. And even in that case, in a dissent by Thurgood Marshall, um, he points to the the fact that actually the danger here is that the go that government agent might come in and find evidence of a crime and feed that evidence to the government or that you know they might uncover um, welfare fraud which itself is a crime and feed that to the government so by letting that government agent in she's putting herself at risk of criminal exposure and so marshall is relying on the risk of criminal exposure as a way of saying, no, 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 we, the Fourth Amendment has to apply here, right? Because of someone's liberty interest as it's attached to the Fourth Amendment uh, interest uh, against violation of privacy. But what he misses there and what he doesn't pay close attention to is the fact that now we're post the Fleming rule, right? And so we're in the world where this person who's coming into the house actually has the power to remove that person's child. So when they're coming in to do that evaluation, they're not just assessing whether or not the person is financially eligible, but they're also assessing whether or not this child needs to be removed from the home. And the court instead is arguing about whether or not there's a criminal exposure here. The majority says, no, there's not, more or less. Uh, and if there is, it's sort of a, a tangential thing that if it happens, it happens, you know, tough, you know, kick rocks. That's the the... Uh, condition of the contract you sign. And the dissent who's arguing for Fourth Amendment protections is saying, yes, there is criminal exposure here, but they're slipping because they're missing the exposure to your, your children being removed or further surveillance by, by this was before CPS was uh, nationally mandated, but CPS uh, started to exist even in this, in this time. Got it. And after your article sets up the doctrinal background, you go on to argue that CPS home searches are, in fact, traditional policing investigations. And as traditional policing investigations, they should be subject to traditional Fourth Amendment principles rather than the administrative search doctrine, which has mostly characterized courts' treatments of CPS home searches today. So can you explain your argument on that point? Yeah, so I, I think that the, um, the administrative search doctrine ends up being pretty confusing to courts and to a lot of people who read about it and sort of pay attention to it. And for purposes of the argument here, when we're talking about home searches, right, and I, I focus the argument on home searches here because 
um, things are much more more clear as it pertains to the breakdown of administrative searches. Administrative searches sort of break down into two groups. One, one group of administrative searches are sort of dragnet searches, right? Here, what I mean by dragnet is when a government agency searches every particular entity in a particular space for the protection of the space at large. And so here I'm thinking about when, for example, in, in New York City, um, the buildings department comes in and checks to make sure that window guards are appropriately in the windows um, of the building. Or when a building inspector goes through a particular part of the town and checks the wiring in, in every single basement to make sure that the wiring is appropriate. In those sorts of cases, the court has said, look, if someone refuses to let you in, the search is so minimally invasive. And importantly, it's not based on an individualized suspicion. It's general that if someone refuses to let you in, the thing that someone needs to do is they go to court, the government agent will go to court and say, hey, it's that time of year again, where we go around and do the building searches. So-and-so at such-and-such address is not letting me in. Can I get a warrant? And you know, let's assume that a statute says that this has to happen every three years or whatever. Based on that three, year, three years passing alone, um, a judge might issue a, a warrant to go in. This is called uh, a camera warrant. Right? And so on that basis, you know, just on the, uh, the refusal alone, if enough time has passed in this example, they could get a warrant to go in and search the basement. So that's a, that's a search sort of that's um, a dragnet search. That's one class of searches. Um, the other class of, of search is a search that um, is incident to diminished privacy, right? And in the home context, when we're talking about diminished privacy, the only examples that exist really for diminished privacy in the home context are for um, individuals who have been incarcerated and are out on some sort of agreement with the state, right, on parole or on probation, where the court has perceived those in ways that I, I personally think are um, probably wrong morally and probably even constitutionally, um, but they perceive the person's home when they're out on probation or parole as simply an extension of the jail that or prison that they were in. And so you you have diminished privacy when you're in, in your home on that condition. It's almost like Wyman, right? Because you've contracted with the state that you're home on this condition and therefore you have a diminished expectation of privacy. Um, and so if the police come and knock on your door because they suspect, because they suspect something, um, they don't need probable cause to, to get in. They may need reasonable suspicion or even less on, on, more, recent, on more recent cases. So the argument that I make in the next part of the article is to say, well, we're not talking about a dragnet search here, and we're not talking about um, a diminished privacy search. On, a dragnet, uh, on the dragnet side of things, this is not the search of every particular home in a, in a neighborhood. It's the search of one individualized home because a call has come in, and it's an allegation against a particular um, individual that they've done something wrong, right? And it's also not a search pursuant to diminished expectation of privacy, because just like anybody who is subject to a criminal investigation, 
Um, these are allegations. Um, they haven't been substantiated. Often they're coming from people who either are required by law to make to make the allegations if if they have even uh, a modicum of suspicion, or um, by anonymous people where you can't really substantiate who's making the allegations or on on what basis. So there's there's certainly no um, diminished expectation of privacy here. And to the extent that it's not this and it's not that, then all that's left is traditional Fourth Amendment principles, and those are the ones that should apply. And so now you've established the traditional Fourth Amendment argument, and assuming that CPS home searches are, in fact, subject to this format, can you sketch out to our listeners how exactly that would impact the conditions under which a CPS agent could obtain entry into someone's home? Yeah, I... I so um, I think it'll be helpful to illustrate this point with uh, with an example. Um, uh, so let's let's imagine that a child um, is playing on the sidewalk, or or in the, even in the street in a in a neighborhood, and someone passes by, um, and and they're concerned. They call um, CPS. And they say, hey, this kid is being left out here. And I see him. They're chewing on a balloon. They're doing this and that. Um, and I need you to come and investigate. I think that this child is being neglected. Right? In the case of a police investigation, let's say that um, this person was being investigated for endangering the welfare of a child. We would need evidence that searching the home itself would help us substantiate that that particular instance um, of the child being left out in the sidewalk or on the street or whatever um, was um, endangering the welfare of a child, right? Then that, uh, not only that, but that if they went into the home, they would find evidence that this thing happened that was endangering the welfare of a child, right? Normally, what would happen in that instance, though, with CPS is that they would just show up at the parent's house. The call comes in, they knock on the door, and the parent says, uh, I, I suppose you can come in. But let's imagine that the parent instead says, no, I really don't feel comfortable with you coming in. And honestly, um, I was right behind my daughter. I was coming right back out. CPS would then have to go to court and say to a judge, Your Honor, you know, we have these allegations that these uh, children were being endangered um, and we need to get into the house and the judge then should say to them under Illinois v Gates which is the Supreme Court precedent that sets the standard a very low standard by the way for what needs to be in a warrant a judge would say to them um, well what evidence have you got that searching someone's entire home is going to uncover evidence that that particular uh, incident was endangering the welfare of a child. And if they were to come back to them and say, well, this anonymous dude called a hotline and said he saw a kid chewing on a balloon on the sidewalk, that's not going to cut mustard under Illinois v. Gates. That's not enough. Then what would have to happen is then CPS would ask, hey, can you produce this child um, somewhere and, and we can we can make sure that they're all right. you know. But beyond that, they they don't have um, enough proof. And so th the home search simply wouldn't happen as a result. They would have to do their investigation in some other way. 
So you mentioned Illinois v. Gates, and I want to quickly talk about that. In your article, you analyze whether the typical lead-up to a CPS home search process would actually create the requisite probable cause for a warrant under Gates. Can you explain your assessment of that specific question? Yeah, um, you know, I, I, I feel like we've sort of touched on it. Maybe I jumped the gun on that question a little bit. Um, but, um, I, you know, I, I do think that the vast, by virtue of the nature of how CPS investigations come in, right? Um, I took some numbers down here just so that I, uh, I could share them with y'all. Um, in 2020, 4 million, 4.3 million, more than 4.3 million cases were reported to statewide central registers across the country, right? 4.3 million. And so theoretically, every single one of those that is deemed to articulate something that meets the definition of neglect or abuse is going to have to be investigated. So of those 4.3 million cases, some an, uh, a CPS worker is doing the job of doing that screening, right? And so they're thinking, does this meet the definition of neglect? or does it not meet the definition of neglect? That year, they decided 2 million of those calls don't even meet the definition of neglect, right? So they've screened those out. So what remain are 2.4 million reports that are screened in and that have to be investigated, right? These reports come from, as we talked about before, uh, mandated reporters, they sometimes come from anonymous callers. They sometimes come from confidential callers. And there's no baseline requirement for the amount of evidence that needs to be included in these reports, right? They, the requirement is not an evidentiary requirement. The requirement is um, a statutory requirement. Um, but that's just not enough to search someone's house, right? And so theoretically, what CPS would have to do on their own before going to knock on someone's door is to try and either gather more information and determine is this something that we are going to go barge into someone's house on or decide like this is not the kind of thing that we're going to spend all of our government resources on investigating and they might be able to do that with some confidence because like i said almost 80 percent of the cases that they end up investigating are unsubstantiated in the first place right and so, um, and so that's, that's, I think, what would end up happening very, very often is either they would spend the resources necessary to do the investigation to substantiate a warrant to get into a home, or they would decide this is a waste of our resources to keep looking into neglect cases. They might decide instead that those resources are best poured into the community without strings attached by asking parents, hey, how best can we help your, your families? What sorts of resources do you need to thrive rather than spending all of that time and effort um, doing the sort of policing that we've been discussing? And you end the article by considering the implications of subjecting CPS home searches to traditional Fourth Amendment scrutiny. For the benefit of our listeners, can you lay out those key takeaways? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, that it's one thing to say that we would subject them to this this scrutiny right um because the the rights here are not um 
self-effectuating. They're not self-enforcing. Um, and so until parents and caregivers feel like they have the power and the support to articulate these rights and to push back um, in the way that it might require, I'm afraid that these rights are not um, going to sort of, um, you know, spawn uh, on, on their own. Um, so what it would mean to enforce them is for, um, you know, parents to, to have the capacity to push back. How do they have the capacity to push back? Well, um, some states um, have already started to put into motion. I think Texas and Arizona, for example, both have statutes that require CPS to inf inform families of their rights um, when CPS comes to the door. New York um, has one um, that is being considered now that has been proposed by parents and affected families, a family Miranda bill, they're calling it, that folks should take a look at and you know support if that's something that that folks are are interested in supporting but really the implications here would be that it would once you know families then have the capacity to push back in that sort of way um the implication would be that cps would have some kind of tough choices to make and I, and i think that those tough choices aren't tough because because cps is uncovering all sorts of wrongdoing in their daily practice, the choices are tough because they've just been violating the law for so long that it's become the, the norm and the practice that they violate the law. So to bring their action in line with the law, I think is going to require some growing pains. Um, but I think it ultimately means deciding, um, as we talked about in previously, whether to gather more facts to substantiate a warrant or um, to let cases go. And to let cases go would mean ultimately to do advocacy around really um, putting resources elsewhere that don't involve um, the, the stick uh, alongside the carrot. And as a final note, what do you hope a listener or reader takes away from this episode more generally? I hope that um, a reader or a listener considers what they might, their their role in this sort of um, thing first and foremost. So if you're a mandated reporter, for example, which many people are, um, and, and many of, I imagine, the listeners and, and readers here might be, um, think about what it means for you to make that call. Um, think about the implications of picking up the phone and and making the call and what trauma that might um, you know uh, visit upon a family the fear that so many of my clients be they um, parents or children have articulated to me that lives with them um, well into their lives even if they were never separated from their families even if they never made it to court because someone came into their home and undermined their attachment to their parent, undermined their parent's ability to be the person who can protect them most. It's traumatizing. It's the kind of stuff that you read about in sort of um, an attachment theory, right? When we're thinking about sort of trauma um, and its long-term um, long impact on, on, a, on a relation. So that's one thing that I would say is if you're a mandated reporter, um, 
think about what you can do before making that call. What sort of resources do you have at your disposal to provide to a family? If instead you're working for CPS, um, what, be it as um, an attorney or, or as a, a line worker, think about the power that you're, um, that, that you're bringing to the table. You know, CPS um, and the lawyers for CPS don't have much incentive to um, comply with the Fourth Amendment because there's no suppression rule in, in uh, child welfare cases. So, for example, if a CPS officer violates the Fourth Amendment in obtaining evidence, they can still present that evidence in, in court, right? And so there's not much built-in incentive for them to comply. So instead, I would say, you know, if you care about the families that you're working with and if you're intending to support them, one way to support them would be to inform them of their of their rights. Or if you don't want to go that far, really think about whether or not you need to go into someone's house and rummage through their stuff. Is that something you need to do? Um, and if you're if you're um, neither of those, um, you know, look into what local parents um, and affected families are doing, um, former foster youth, others who are organizing around these issues. Um, and, and get involved if this is something that interests you. The Family Miranda Bill here in New York is, is a very small way um, for, for folks to get involved. Call your legislators, let them know that this is something that, that you think is important. Professor, thank you so much for joining us and discussing your article. Thanks for taking the time. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the California Law Review podcast. If you would like to read Professor Ismael's article, you can find it in Volume 111, Issue 5 of the California Law Review at californialawreview.org. For updates on new episodes and articles, please follow us on Instagram at California Law Review. A complete list of our socials is available on our website. Lastly, you can find a list of the editors who worked on this volume of the podcast in the show notes. See you in the next episode.